Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Beckett Talks podcast. We are joined this week by Professor Paul Gately from the Carnegie School of Sport. Paul is a professor specialising in exercise and obesity and is also the founder of More Life. More Life aims to help the UK's fight against obesity in both adults and children, working with the NHS in helping people lead happier and healthier lives. Paul has joined us this week to discuss the topic of National Obesity Awareness Week, as well as the current state of the UK's ongoing issue with obesity. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Firstly, how impactful do you feel awareness campaigns such as National Obesity Awareness Week are in really tackling the issue of obesity in the UK? I think a constant reminder of the issue is really important and a platform to talk about just different agendas throughout the year is really key. So having a National Obesity Awareness Week is is pretty critical. At the same time, you know, we're in January, it's New Year, the gyms are flooded with people. So it's also an important time to do it because it's at the forefront of people's mind after a few weeks of rightly and, you know, enjoying themselves and indulging and now getting back into the sort of more regular life that we have. So, you know, the timing of Awareness Weeks are also critical because, you know, they might give some people some nudges in the right direction. And that can only be a good thing to raise awareness about healthy lifestyles and keep it at the forefront of people's minds because it's what's needed. You know, it, it is what's needed. Exactly. And you're talking as well about the timing of that. Obviously, New Year's resolutions are probably the biggest kickstart for any fitness journey for anybody of any ability, really, whether, you know, they've had a couple of weeks off and, you know, they're a keen trainer or, you know, like you say, it's someone that's starting afresh. In terms of that, how do you see the government strategy in terms of tackling the issue of obesity? You know, obviously, it's critical that they get the timings right, but also possibly some of the messages right as well. Yeah, I think the, I think first and foremost, the messages. I, I've got to say, government has been much better over the last few years in, in its appreciation of understanding the language that's used. So if we were to read the BC strategies of 10 years ago, the language was problematic. It was very accusational of people living with obesity. It made many people feel like failures. Whereas I think the language has started to transition to realise that actually, you know, and even in the terminology of people living with obesity rather than obese people, you know, obese people is they're more than just their weight. So let's describe them as as a person. But let's say as part of that person, they live with a problem, which is obesity, or they might live with diabetes or they might live with cancer or might live with dyslexia. You know, there's all these things that we live with on a day by day basis. And I think. You know, government have certainly shifted the needle on the language it's using. And I think that's really, really important because first and foremost, if you if you put people off at the start, then, of course, they're going to disengage. So the language and the tone, I think, is getting better. What I would say is, from my perspective, I think the action is just nowhere near where it needs to be. And interestingly, there was a report last week by colleagues from Cambridge University, and they were really outlining that despite the clear 
pressure of the evidence around sugar over the last decade. And we have seen a reduction in sugar consumption, but the overall diet hasn't changed in its healthiness. And, and in a sense, what that really shows is the simplicity of government policy and why it's not working, that they're taking a singular issue of sugar. It's only a relatively small part of our diet. They've gone at it hard, but they've gone at it really in terms of the totality of the problem. And it's unsurprising that it hasn't solved the problem. And so, you know, people like me would have said five to ten years ago, look, you've got to recognise that there's more complexity to this and just looking at a single nutrient not the way forward. The other thing I'd say, if I put my more like hat on, Government policy and government strategy is still focused on those that don't have the problem and a large majority of them won't have the problem. So those people with the means, with the skills, with the resources will be at the gyms, will be changing their diet. We'll be able to go around the sort of the vegetable aisle, at, 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 you know, at Tesco, Sainsbury's, Lidl, wherever they're going, and they'll be able to sort of choose the healthier foods. And whereas there's lots of other people that are out there that don't have the, the means, the capability and the resources. And in a sense, they're going to be sort of struggling and grappling. And I don't think government policy is anywhere near really addressing those that are most in need. And that, to me, is really frustrating because government can talk a good game about sugar and they can talk a good game about advertising bans. But at the end of the day, is it really having a meaningful impact on those in most deprived communities? And the argument is no. The evidence is really, really clear that it's going the opposite way to government's intentions. The government figures indicate about 63% of adults are above what they call a healthy weight. Now, Paul, what would you say defines a healthy weight? So, so we use the tool BMI, so body mass index, and that's a measure of someone's height and weight. It's a sort of it's an equation of their height and weight, basically. And the thing is, we hear lots of people sort of bash this as a, as a measure. And yes, of course, it, no measure is accurate 100 percent. But BMI is a useful tool for categorizing people. And what it does is it usually, not always, but usually accurately identifies people who are in the unhealthy weight range. But it also does is where people are not in that range, if it's an error, then, then it usually, it, it's usually okay at missing the errors as well. So, so in a sense, it's a useful populational tool and a guide. It's not the only guide. You know, we know we should be, you know, eating three meals a day. We should have a couple of healthy snacks you know, get an hour's physical activity a day, get six to eight hours sleep a day. They're, they're the things that we should be doing on a day-to-day basis, and they're part of our sense check. And weight is just part of that on BMI. So if people are in the higher BMI category, you know, it doesn't mean to say that everything's a problem, but it does mean to say that they need to be aware. Much like if people are drinking five pints of beer a day, you know, people should be th- saying, well, actually, I know that that is problematic. So actually, where, where do I shift that to and how do I change it? So it's an, it's an indicator and it's a tool and it's not a sentence. And I think that's the, that's the point is that we, people seem to get hung up on which category they're in and then arguing, well, I'm not in that category. I do my exercise and I eat well. Well, you know, that may well be the case, but the, the data is relatively accurate. It's not, it's not perfect, but it's relatively accurate. Yeah, exactly. And you talk about uh, how people see it as a sentence. Do you think that 
um, using like the red and the green that you see on like nutrition packets and everything else. Do you think that's something that subconsciously people see as a sentence where, you know, if they see something that's red, obviously something that's green, they're getting different connotations from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, of course, what we've got to do is we've got there is, there is an element about making people aware, but there's also about making people scared. And it's about getting that balance right. It's not easy. And, you know, we've got a population of. You know, we've got a large population of many tens of millions of people and how you convey messages to the whole audience is really difficult to do. So we need simplistic messages. We need accurate messages and we need messages that people can then act upon. And, and I think, you know, we've got we've got sort of simple messages. We've got messages that people can understand, but we haven't got really the means by which people can then act. If you haven't got the resources, the ability to act is much lower. And I think that's the big problem. So in our area of work at Leeds Beckett, we genuinely are focused on tackling health inequalities. You know, and so I bang the drum very strongly, as well as other colleagues, to say actually a lot of government policy increases rather than reduces health inequalities. And our Institute of Abuse is committed to trying to tackle those problems and raise awareness of it. The Carnegie School of Sport at Leeds Beckett University is one of the largest providers of sport in UK higher education. Recently investing £45 million in a new home for sport, the new building provides world-class sporting facilities and also acts as a hub for elite athletes, sports and industry partners. With courses in sport, exercise and health sciences, physical education, sports management and sports coaching, the school takes an interdisciplinary approach to teaching and research enabling the students to graduate with the skills needed to succeed in an evolving sport and physical activity industry. So, if any of these subjects interest you, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSOS for more information. One of the big challenges for the likes of yourself trying to help people and, you know, get them more active is obviously the challenge of having lockdowns and stay at home messages. How much do you think that's impacted possibly the obesity scale in the UK? There was data out just before before Christmas, around November time. Every, every year, children the, at the reception and year six are assessed for their weight. The, the BMI is calculated every year. And we're in the UK, we have the best data anywhere in the, on the planet. So we've been really good at this. And this has been a big focus and we have some real rich data. I've got to say, I've never seen such frightening data as what was released in November. And what it showed was our reception age children and our year six children. So really age five and age 11 we've seen a 50% increase in levels of obesity in those age groups. Now, I can't begin to tell you what, how massive a change that is. I mean, it is significant. Now, of course, that's due to COVID. That's due to all the factors associated with COVID. And, and I suppose you can get into lots of conversations, but fundamentally, we now have a large proportion of our children and therefore likely our adults that have gained a significant amount of weight during during the COVID period. And and that will have catastrophic effects for a very, very long time. And we think COVID's gonna you know impact, but obesity is already having you know similar sort of impacts on a day-by-day basis anyway. Not to mention what we are likely to see over the, the, the next few decades is the legacy of COVID on obesity 
and then on the healthcare system. Like you said, the figures are quite frankly frightening, aren't they, in terms of a severe increase with that. How does that challenge sort of the work that you do? Because obviously in the past you've run summer camps as part of More Life, you offer a lot of research and a lot of knowledge, but also practical. How is that really going to impact you going forward? Is there a bit of a change in sort of scope for you guys going forward? I suppose not necessarily changing scope because the, the need is there. I mean, the need is even more. The point is that the need is greater. I think the issue is that government are still talking and not acting. That's the issue. And I, and I, and I understand it. <laughs> I mean, if you're Boris Johnson at the moment, your life is pretty challenging. And it has been challenging for a long time. And some of that is his own doing. Some of it is his party's doing. And some of it is our nation and the, the global epidemic of, of COVID and global epidemic of obesity. The point is, is it's, it is his job and, and the government's job to really prioritise activities that will have a long term beneficial impact on our society. That's what we elect them to do. And what I would argue is obesity and tackling obesity is still well down the priority list for action. It's high up the agenda for talking about. But there is, there is a real disconnect. And the amount of times I have heard our government officials say world leading and I'm thinking you are this is not world leading. It's not if it's world leading. It's not our world. It's some other world that you're talking about because this is not a world leading strategy. And the evidence is really clear. You know, the evidence of year by year increases in obesity, all the figures are going absolutely the wrong way. And so so for me, and where does More Life sit? More Life and LBU are doing some fantastic work in this area where we are changing the lives of people through research and through practice on a day by day basis. However, we are limited by the reach we can have and the impact we can have because this is not a priority in our government's mind. And they would rather sort of bash the food industry rather than engage with the population to help them shift their sort of lifestyles in a way where they're going to be more healthy. Exactly. And I know in a previous podcast as well, you've mentioned how there's no singular sort of fix to obesity and that it's a very complex issue to go at. But one of the things that I'm very intrigued about is sort of the philosophy of more life and the work that you do at LBU in helping people feel happier, which you think leads to a healthier life. Can you just explain a little bit about that philosophy? I guess for me, I've worked with, with many, many thousands of children and adults. What I think the research shows really clearly is you have to get people on board. You have to engage with people. You have to talk their language. You have to understand them. You have to create programs that meet their lives, not the opposite way around. We, we, we're not, you know, white coat, finger wagging experts that say, you know, you know, do this, do that, eat this many calories, do this much exercise. And if you can't, it's your own fault. You've got your problem. I mean, that's just the totally the wrong way of looking at this. And, the, you know, and it, it's much more about how do we engage and having fun as even as an adult or as a child. And I always give an example, you know, there will be many people at the moment in gyms across the planet getting on treadmills and hating every single second of it. If you were to put a group of children on a treadmill and get them to do some exercise, within two minutes, they'd be sort of looking around and within five minutes they'd have got off. Adults will just keep going despite the pain. Well, 
which group's more intelligent there? I mean, the, the fundamental point is that what, what our child will do is do things that we enjoy and do things that we are likely to keep doing. What our adult brain tells us to do is to do things that we think we should do, but then we give up because we always find something else to get in the way. Whereas if it, we're engaged, we're enjoying it, it's fun. You know, not just exercise, but diet and not just diet, but sleep and not just sleep, but our social interactions. These are all the things that are important about that complex picture of obesity. And so when in more life, I mean, the term more life came out because we spoke to people and they said to us, we sort of asked them, well, you know, help us understand what you see as as an organisation, because we're sort of considering what's our name, what's our brand. And what came out really strongly from all that work was we give people more life. You know, and that was what they kept saying to us. Well, you've given me this and you've given me that. You've made me more confident. You've made me more feel more happy about myself. You've made me engage more in these sort of things. And you've made me realise that prioritising my health leads to a whole host of knock-on benefits. And so you're giving me more life. And so... Hence the name More Life. And I think, you know, I talk about the brand because basically that's what we've been working on doing. And and that, again, is the interaction between the university and More Life. I mean, More Life is owned by the parent company Leeds Beckett. So in a sense that, you know, there's a very strong relationship there. And I think that relationship between research and practice is, is mutually beneficial. So we're getting some really good research. But that research is informing our practice. And it's it's that research of saying, you know, what is this about? It's not just about calories in and calories out. It's about well, what are the factors that drive people's consumption and what are the factors that drive their sort of um, activities? Yeah. And one of the things that with sort of the activity side that I wanted to mention as well is obviously off the back of us to discussion about lockdowns, a lot of people are used to binging TV shows, being on the phone 24-7. Obviously, games consoles have been, especially in children, you know, not getting out and getting active. Those sort of social challenges, how has it changed how you've had to approach them in the last 10 years or so? Well, it's changed because, again, it's about how do we connect? How do we, you know, how do we take people's daily lived experience? Because there's no point in having some abstract sort of, factors that we're trying to consider we've got to consider people's daily lived experience and and covid's had a profound impact on that because we have been fundamentally locked in our homes for a large proportion of that time and there's reality of risk and then there's perception of risk and those that are at the more risky end of the spectrum have been locked down even more they're the ones that are already suffering health inequality so they're the ones less likely to get out and be active less likely to be more social and less likely to eat a healthier diet because of the exposure of that environment. And and I suppose that, for me, is where our work needs to go. And that's where, you know, again, why are we looking at, in the work that we do at Leeds Beckett, systems in terms of the national and the policy system? Why are we looking at treatment and prevention? Because we want to understand the lived experience of people. And why are we looking at health inequalities? Because we believe that there's a big part of our population that are really underserved and we want to shine a spotlight much more effectively on those people because we believe through LVU and More Life we can have a much bigger impact on their lives. When you think about stuff like when Joe Wicks, for example, became a national hero essentially, didn't he, in terms of tackling that obesity on the you know, sort of face of it with YouTube, how do you think that's going to impact you guys? Is it something that you're thinking of doing more online-based stuff to try and help that? What, what sort of work have you guys been doing in the lockdown? Obviously, lockdown impacted on us, and a lot of our work was face-to-face. But we've been talking about digital, and 
at LBU, we've got great colleagues in our in, in computing. And so we've got we work with our colleagues in computing and we developed an online platform for our programs. And what we've done is we've sort of learned with people along the way. And then last year we were successful in being one of NHS England's providers for digital weight management. So we have transitioned like everybody else to online platforms. And effectively, we have online digital platforms where people can can go on and get support. But we have online platforms where they also have phone coaching or sort of Zoom coaching as well. So that enables us to really transition in the way that everyone else has transitioned to more online platforms. And we have, you know, we've got videos and we've got podcasts and we've got talks, all part of that content that enables us to sort of support people in the in the real world of a digital world that we all exist in. Yeah, and you mentioned there about having the partnership with the NHS. I read you do sort of referrals with GPs as well. What how does that sort of work in terms of the relationship that you've got there and sort of the person's journey through that? The NHS is getting better at this and that, you know, in the, in the same way as you might go and need some antibiotics and they'll prescribe them for you, the NHS now can prescribe weight management online um, and that's what it does. So effectively, people will go to their GP, have a conversation and they may get a referral to the More Life Service. And, you know, we hope many more people will get referrals to the More Life Service because we know it's working. The data is showing already that we're sort of about six months in and the data is showing that it's really working really well. People are engaging, losing weight and having an impact on their lives. What is next on the horizon, I guess, for More Life and the work that you guys are looking to do? I guess it's really trying to just, at the moment, improve that journey. We are getting lots of people through. But in that, the health inequalities are caused by the fact that the programmes that people go through aren't quite right for them. And so we're doing a lot of work trying to sort of segment not just men and women and different, you know, different age and uh, different ethnicities and different cultures and different sort of experiences, different medical conditions are all part of how do we characterise people on their journey and support them appropriately along the way? I mean, I think that's the key thing to this is making sure that the consumer journey, if you like, is is real and genuine and, and appropriate because we believe that that will lead to the impacts that we want, which is to have, you know, people losing weight, being more healthy and being happier. And I suppose my final question for you, Paul, is for any of our listeners that are, you know, listening to this conversation, thinking about, you know, possibly wanting to leave a healthier lifestyle, trying to figure it out. What advice would you give to them? So I think firstly, visit our website, morelife.co.uk. But I think, you know, the most important thing for me is it's a change, a lifestyle change that is implemented on a daily basis. And what I find is people are very drawn to doing the new thing but they get the basics wrong you know fundamentally we know so for example sleep has a profound impact on people's days and and yet people will be up watching into the early hours of the morning tv and then they'll sort of the alarm goes off and they feel groggy and so their likelihood of eating healthily their likelihood of being active is all undermined by the fact that they went to bed late the night before. So a real simple thing would be to say, you know, being a lot more disciplined around getting some sleep because actually then the next morning people wake up better. Think about eating a bit better. They're not in a rush. They're not sort of, they've not pressed snooze five times and then they're sort of rushing out the door, you know, with a with a piece of toast, which then has an impact on them grabbing a bacon sandwich in the mid-morning. You can see the sort of knock-on effect. So getting that sleep, 
getting people up a bit earlier, getting into a better routine. You know, all of those things really, really matter. So I'm not going to talk about the food and the activity. I'm going to talk about the sleep because the knock on of that is critical. But to do that on a day by day basis. And, and the only other thing I'd say is it isn't, you know, in the exercise side, it's it's. You know, lots of people will be in the gyms in January and then the gyms will be dead in February. The people that are still in the gym in February and March and so on and so forth will continue to do well. But it's not just about the gym. You could walk every day. You know, people could find, get off a bus stop a bit earlier. There's always ways to add a bit of activity. And we, we have a term, take every opportunity to be active that we use at More Life. And so there's just another one to sort of throw out there, basically. Perfect. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the Beckett Talks podcast. It's been really interesting listening to the work that you do with More Life and also how you guys are planning to tackle obesity as well. So thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much, too. And thank you as well for listening to this week's edition of the Beckett Talks podcast. We'll be back next week with another insightful discussion with our leading academics. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.